This podcast was recorded on Thursday, November 22nd at 3.26 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. There's so much snow outside that Santa Morno came around yesterday <laughs> and gave them a $15 billion Christmas present. Uh, that's a lot of money. are large, more than $10 billion over five years, that will assure that we can be competitive, create jobs for the future. And with that, Finance Minister Bill Morneau confirmed Canada will likely be spending the next decade or so in the red. Isn't it true that we've gone from the budget will balance itself to the budget will never balance itself at all? Mr. Speaker, what I continue to hear from the member of Carleton are buzzwords from first-year economics textbooks. The Canadian economy is roaring, and as the Liberals like to say, Canada led the G7 countries last year in economic growth. So why is the government injecting even more cash into the economy? Could it be that there is an election on the way? I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. Also this week, the Grits came forward with financial help for what they called trusted news sources. The Conservatives say Justin Trudeau's government is trying to, quote, rig the next election with tax measures for the news industry. What this amounts to is Justin Trudeau buying journalism again. I'm not making this up. Is that fair? We'll flip the question to our political pundits later in the show. We'll also weigh in on the challenges facing two opposition leaders. The NDP under Jagmeet Singh is polling around 11%, and their new leader will be under pressure to win a much-anticipated by-election in BC's Burnaby South. What's behind the party's apparent free-fall in public opinion surveys? And what if he loses? Over here in Ontario, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer was busy cozying up to Doug Ford. Premier of Ontario, my friend Doug Ford. What a great speech he gave last night, and what great leadership he's providing to the people of Ontario. But already, the Ford-Sheer relationship is hitting a major roadblock with the Conservatives in Quebec. Ford decided to cut services to francophones in Ontario, and Team Sheer can't seem to convince the Premier to reverse that. So, big hurdles for each of the major party leaders. Let's hear what our political experts have to say. understand that this Prime Minister knows how to spend, but the question is whether or not he knows how to balance the budget. If the budget will balance itself, then when will the budget balance itself? We've had the fastest growth in the G7 in 2017. We've seen over half a million full-time jobs be created in the last three years, Mr. Speaker. And we see, at the same time, our debt-to-GDP ratio steadily going down, Mr. Speaker. This is fiscally responsible, and this is growing our economy. Thank you. Those were some of the MPs in question period this week. Wednesday, Morneau announced the government won't be following U.S. President Donald Trump's corporate tax cuts, but will instead give businesses who invest in manufacturing equipment or clean technology the ability to fully deduct that cost immediately. That was a major part of the $17.6 billion in new spending the federal government laid out in its fall economic update. Carl Belanger is the president of Douglas Caldwell Foundation and a past national director of the NDP. 
Rachel Curran was Prime Minister Stephen Harper's Director of Policy, and she is now a Senior Associate with Harper & Associates. And Greg McEachran is a Senior Vice President with Proof and served as Senior Advisor to several Liberal Cabinet Ministers. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you. What a mouthful of all of your expertise. Um, let me start off kind of by looking back. Last year, we were talking about uh, how the Liberals had mismanaged a, um, a file regarding uh, tax changes to private corporations. And at the time, the entire business community seemed to have come out and uh, was very, very critical of the Trudeau government. I think there was a risk that the Liberals might be seen as being anti-business. Does this week's move address that in the lead up to the election? Well, I would say looking at the response from uh, business organizations, business councils, the Chamber of Commerce, I would say yes, that um, business seem to be very happy with this. Um, overall, it's it's funny the comparison that you make. Um, I, I think there has been a marked change in the way Bill Morneau, his office, um, handles events like this. Uh, what I'm noticing is that this fiscal update was probably better plotted and planned and landed better than some of his budgets. The economic and fiscal update uh, yesterday was focused more on helping bigger businesses, mm -hmm. so on the corporate sector. And look, I think that's um, it was necessary. I think we had to do something, right? Donald Trump has lowered tax rates in the U.S., the advantage we had in terms of an investment climate in Canada had disappeared. And so there was all this pressure for the government to somehow do something to keep businesses, especially larger businesses in Canada, and to make Canada a more attractive place for investment. So the measures that they announced, including the accelerated capital cost allowance and write-offs for new equipment, um, those are all things that the uh, corporate sector had been asking for. Uh, and I think those are all good things. So, you know, we can get to the criticisms <laughs> later, but the, certainly the measures they announced on the investment front um, are things that hopefully will uh, I, I improve the investment climate here. There's so much snow outside that Santa Morno came around yesterday <laughs> and gave them a $15 billion Christmas present. Uh, that's a lot of money. Uh, that's what big business got if you combine it with the media package. And, and the funny thing is that in a week, we won't talk about it because uh, there was not much else in that economic update. There was no electoral goodies. It was all rhetoric and those few measures that were very targeted. I think they could ride some positive miles out of it. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think it has a, a major impact on the political narrative which I think is what was intended. The deficit, there's no end in sight. We have the deficit galore for years to come. But you know what? In 2015, during the election, Stephen Harper, the conservative leader, and Tom Mulcair of the NDP were saying that the liberal plan was going to end up exactly like it is ending up right now. And people did not care then. I don't think they care now. Well, a lot of liberals I spoke with, liberal MPs said they don't think their constituents will care. But I think the question that needs to be asked is, I mean, do we even really need to do this? The economy is moving along quite well. Uh, should we be having structural deficits to bail out the corporate sector? When what happened to this whole like Paul Martin balanced budget? Is that 
are, are we done? Are like the 1990s behind <laughs> us? We're and done. we're it's never going to talk over. about balanced Long budgets time. again? Long time. Why are you looking at the blue liberal? <laughs> I look back at the 90s. You had Preston Manning as leader of the opposition, pressuring the government to balance the budget. Um, and there was, uh, in the United States, you had President Clinton doing the same thing. And then all of a sudden now, you know, we're told that, you know, deficits aren't as bad a thing as, as we perhaps once thought. In terms of the situation, uh, you really can't compare you know, budget 1995 to budget 2019 as an apples to apples comparison. As a blue liberal, am I uncomfortable with deficits? Yes, but we've been on the deficit track for more than just the time of the Trudeau government. Um, you know, the previous government ran deficits, the recession ended, we continued to run deficits. So I think that's part of the challenge federally. Do I think people are more comfortable than they used to be? Apparently so. Yeah, so here we get into the criticism. Of, of course, we shouldn't be deficit financing the corporate sector, but we wouldn't need to if we hadn't been running deficits up until now during during a, a, a you know a good economic time when the economy was growing. Um, ideally, you want to save deficit spending for when you're in a recession. So for the last few years, the Trudeau government's just been unable to get its spending under control. That means we headed into a situation where the U.S. was making changes to their tax rates, where I would argue we actually had to respond and do take measures like the government took yesterday. Um, but we had no fiscal room to do that without increasing the size of the deficit because they hadn't been re responsible with their spending up until then. Look, we're going to be into another recession at some point too. It's not going to be as severe, hopefully, as the one in 0809, uh, but we are going to have to respond to a recession at some point. That's just how these cycles work. To that point, though, I would just add something that we're seeing is some of the, our, our, the corporations I work with are doing the signs that you see before a recession. Not to be, you know, a Debbie Downer here, but, you know, when you see people in the fourth quarter say, okay, no more travel or we're cutting back on this. So I, I do think yeah, I've heard a lot yesterday around how great the economy is. I also see some things in the corporate side that people are perhaps a little uneasy. We didn't um, talk about Alberta. Uh, oh, no, we didn't talk about Alberta. Do you want to say something about Alberta? Well, I, if there's one last major criticism of this economic and fiscal update is that there is nothing in there for the oil and gas sector, the energy sector in Alberta, which is currently in crisis. Um, $80 million a day we're losing because of the differential in our oil prices because we cannot get our resources to market. And there was absolutely no word about that in the government's economic and fiscal update. I think that's going to be a big disappointment for Alberta, and it's going to create really more hard feeling in the West. I want to talk to you about something else that was uh, in the fiscal update, a little bit of a surprise, um, even for those in the media sector. The Liberals announced three new tax measures worth $595 million to help the struggling media industry. They announced uh, not-for-profit media organizations like La Presse, for example, who's just become a not-for-profit, would be allowed to issue charitable tax credits or receipts, rather, they announced a new non-refundable 15% tax credit for those who want to subscribe to digital publications, and a refundable tax credit, this is probably the most controversial ones, to qualifying news outlets to pay for their labor costs. 
The conservatives are out there saying that the Trudeau government is doing this to buy favorable media coverage in an election year. Do the conservatives have a point? Yeah, this is one of the um, most incredible things I've actually seen from this government. And, you know, there's a long list of, of incredible things. I think one of the, the foundation stones of our democracy is a free and independent press. And to be clear, I'm completely supportive of that. Uh, the industry, the media is going through a really difficult transition right now. And I think, yes, we probably need to look at a way of supporting them through that transition. The government has picked the absolute worst way of doing that. They are going to decide, they're going to appoint a panel of so-called independent uh, experts who are going to decide who's going to get this money. So there'll be winners and losers in the government will be the one handing out money. Everyone's going to be jockeying for a piece of this. The perception is that they are going to be influenced by this money on offer from the government. And that's tremendously problematic. It undermines the credibility of the media. Uh, I think it undermines a really important cornerstone of our democracy. And uh, I think the government has to walk this back. They've got to come up with another model for supporting uh, the independent press, which I think is important. Um, but this isn't the right way of doing it. Well, I think the main problem of this package, is, I mean, there are many problems. One is the one about the perception that they could be media biased to, cur to, to curtail the government favors. Um, I think it's just a perception. I don't think it's the reality, but it doesn't really matter because it plays right into the narrative uh, that the conservatives have uh, this war on the media that they have. You know, they're against us, even though 95% of them endorsed us in the last election. doesn't really matter. Um, you know, the perception is there. The base feeds feeds into it, and they love that stuff. Uh, but the main problem is that I don't think it will work. I, I don't think we'll save the media with that package. But isn't the labor cost a way of getting to that problem in the sense that you're incentivizing media organizations to hire more reporters? But it doesn't change the systemic problem at, at the end of the day. I mean, this is $600 million, so in five years, what do we do? $1.5 Like, this is the problem. It doesn't change the system uh, and, and the, 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 the current structure of the business so I, I come at this from a very, uh, I think, a different point of view, a very non-urban one. I, I'm from rural Canada, grew up that way. Um, I, this sounds like a log cabin story, but honest to goodness, we only had one channel until I was in about grade three. Um, I used to joke that the previous government used to talk about uh, coast to coast to coast. Well, if you want to talk about the Arctic, the, the only way people there got news for a long, long time and still really depend on is the CBC, which is subsidized. So for me, I just kind of in, in some ways see this as an offshoot or a growth of the fact that we are a nation next to one of the biggest influencers of culture in the world, something that the province of Quebec has had to deal with for a long time. Um, you, you can't kind of put a border up in terms of radio waves. Um, so they had the additional issue of, of language besides culture. So I, part of this I, I just see is this has been kind of the Canadian way in order to have a uh, some sort of way that we can speak to everyone. We've had entities like the CBC be heavily funded. Um, the government was, you know, something's happened in two years where they were ruling it out and now they feel the pressure to do something. And I think of Paul Godfrey going to a baseball game with the Conservative Minister of Finance during the campaign in 2015 and now he loves the Liberals. That, that scares me a little bit, I have to admit, <laughs> as, as, a, as a Liberal. I just want to run a clip of this uh, Conservative ad featuring Peter Kent, who used to be the Global News anchor. And uh, Scott Sims will respond. He's a Liberal MP from Newfoundland who used to be the TV weatherman there. Canadians depend on a free and independent press. 
This naked attempt by Justin Trudeau to rig the next election in his favor is decidedly undemocratic. I don't need to tell you about the appearance of conflict of interest that this presents. They expect this will give them a massive advantage, and in some cases, they are right. What do we have? We have you. I think that's terrible for Peter Kent to say. I mean, he's, he's a journalist. He's a former journalist. It's very, it's disappointing when you hear that. I'm Scott Sims. I'm a member of Parliament in Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, I, I don't know why they, they want to torque up that type of rhetoric. I think that's terrible. I mean, I don't have near the experience that he does with journalism, but yet even I know that that's a terrible argument to say. It's insulting to anybody who's in journalism. But hasn't it been shown to work? I mean, if we look down south, uh, President Trump's desire to vilify the media, to call them fake news, to make them out to be the enemy, has made people question whether or not what they read in mainstream media is actually accurate or not. And in some ways helps uh, respond to some of the criticism that columnists and news articles point out about his administration. I think when people like President Trump would say, all these people here are fake news, prove it. Prove it. He can't. I read, you know, I, to me, the New York Times is fair and balanced on its news content. They also have an opinion page. The Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, my goodness, I'll even read The Sun on occasion. And I'm a left-wing guy. Two thousand eighteen was a rocky year for the federal Liberals, but public opinion polls have the grits on the up and up. For a snapshot of the electoral landscape, I walked two blocks down from Parliament Hill and met with David Coletto. He's the CEO of Abacus Data, a polling market research firm. Well, right now, I, we're seeing the Liberals with a substantial national lead, uh, really buoyed by strong support in BC, Ontario, and Quebec, which basically points to likely a Liberal majority government again with the Conservatives basically where they were uh, in 2015 and the NDP losing a handful of seats mainly in, in Quebec. And so, uh, and that trend we've seen for most of the year, but what, what we've noticed is that the gap between the Liberals and the Conservatives earlier this year had tightened up to, in our tracking, a pretty competitive race. It's opened up now to seven points and that's been driven, I think, by uh, growing sentiment towards the government's performance generally, uh, the Prime Minister's personal numbers have improved, um, and at the same time, people don't know much more about Andrew Scheer, and, uh, and actually, in terms of Jagmeet Singh, they don't know much more about him, and more people still have a negative view than a positive view of him. What happened over the past year? What explains that, that narrowing of the gap between the Tories and the Liberals, and why it's widened since then? I think on the on the the, the overall context is, you know, uh, we've we've seen some change in 2018. Uh, in March, you had the prime minister's trips to India, which really did have an impact on our polling. For for a long time, we had seen consistent numbers, not a lot of change, and then from basically February to March, we saw five six point drop in everything for liberals. Whether that's you looked at how they feel about the prime minister, how the public feels about the government, and then how they would vote. And since that March poll, uh, the Liberals have gone back and forth two, three, four points ahead of the Conservatives, uh, but it was only until recently that they started to open that gap up. I think 
perhaps it's hard to pinpoint exact uh, effects or causes, but the trade deal with the United States, um, you know, a growing sense, I think, that people uh, feel feel generally good about our country in contrast to what's going on in the United States has helped uh, the government. And then in Ontario, the election of Doug Ford, I think, has uh, and the removal of Kathleen Wynne as a burden on the liberal brand in Ontario has helped the liberals in Ontario. And so when you've got um, the largest province feeling a little more positive about the liberals, that helps the overall national numbers as well. Maybe it's too early to ask you this question, but do we see that Mr. Ford's numbers are pulling down, Andrew Shear? Mr. Ford's numbers are getting worse, not better. Um, a majority of Ontarians now have a negative view of Mr. Ford. That's up six points in a month from 48% to 54. And so I don't think it's a coincidence necessarily that the, the, the Conservatives have had a hard time finding some momentum in Ontario. And the Liberals have benefited from what appears to be more of a consolidation of that anti-Ford vote around the Liberals. And so on the one hand, you've got the you know, a number of premiers that are now conservative oriented. You've got potential premiers coming down the path in Jason Kenney in Alberta, which which present problems for the prime minister from a policy perspective. But politically, it also gives him an opportunity to be the counterweight and make himself be seen as the counterweight to this emerging conservative uh, coalition at the provincial and uh, federal level with Mr. Scheer. David, thank you. Thanks, Althea. We're back with Carl, Rachel, and Greg. Okay, so a year out of a federal election, things are not looking great for the opposition parties. Carl, I'm going to start with you. What explains the NDP at 11%? I'm told this is actually the lowest they've been since the 1990s. Yeah, well, it was one poll from uh, our good... Two now. Well, the, 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 I mean, the, when you ask prime minister question, it's different than when you ask voting intention. And there's only one poll with voting intention, uh, and it's the mainstream poll. The the, uh, the Abacus poll puts the NDP in the mid-teens, as did every other poll since then and before that. So... Nevertheless, the trend is not good for the NDP, and the trend is not good for Jagmeet Singh. Uh, in fact, if you are to believe Main Street, he is running third in the riding of Burnaby South. Things are not looking up. And to answer your question, why I think the NDP used to be a party contending for power for a short period of time under Jack Layton and Tom Mulcair. They went for power. Mulcair tried went as far as being a month out of winning the, the election and then was turfed. So now we have to start from scratch and the party is no longer contending for power. Nobody credibly can say that the NDP will form government in the next election. Um, there's no money trailing in the polls. The leader is not known. There's no real narrative out there. Uh, so the biggest mistake the party made was to turf the leader that got them the closest to power uh, without having a plan to get it, get the party to power. And so now you're seeing the results of that. And it's through no fault of Jagmeet Singh, who, you know, uh, saw an opportunity for, 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 for himself and, and tried to bring his vision. But the reality is that you can't um, uh, turf a guy like Tom O'Care who had had the experience and uh, could have learned from that campaign uh, and, and could have 
held Justin Trudeau's feet to the fire. I mean, just imagine uh, Mulcair in the house as leader, going after him on the Aga Khan, going after him on the Indian trip. I mean, it would have been a bit, no offense to Andrew Scheer, but it would have been a little more exciting uh, than what we saw in the last few months. Uh, Mr. Singh will now have to compete in this Burnaby South by-election in January, to be called sometime in February. The Liberals have uh, decided finally, after months of dithering, that they are going to run somebody against him. The Conservatives had already said they were going to run somebody against him. What if he doesn't win? Then he's gone. I, I'm a bit mystified because I've 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 met Jugmeet a couple of times, found him very very engaging. But the longer that I watch him, the more I start to wonder if he's somebody who is actually comfortable in his own skin, if he's comfortable in the situation he is, because he's not taken one area and seized it and done it well. Say what you will about Mulcair, he was very good in the house. Jack Layton, I mean, what he did in Quebec and his understanding of the advertising that they did around the 2011 election, there was something there. I'm still waiting to find out what it is that, besides looking really good in a suit, that the NDP leader has. Yeah, I totally agree with Carl. I, you know, Jagmeet Singh, and I find this very sad because we need this. As a conservative, I want the NDP to do much better than they're doing right now. And I actually like Mr. Singh as well. He seems like a really nice guy. And whenever you see him speak, he's, you know, he's very affable and um, and quite appealing. The problem is, I think that he's failed to articulate a vision for the NDP that's different in any way or in a meaningful way uh, from the one that Justin Trudeau has articulated. And of course, the Trudeau Liberals. Are, are running very much to the left. Um, they're not really a centrist party anymore. They're, they're in many ways a left-wing party, particularly on social issues. And so they seem to really be eating up the NDP's ground and eating their lunch on the left. And so that's a huge problem, not just for the NDP, it's a huge problem for Andrew Scheer as well. If you're French-speaking in this province, why would you think that this government gives a damn about you anymore? Ontario is home to more than 600,000 francophones, making it the largest French-speaking minority community in Canada. Make sure it's very clear that many people across Ontario, uh, the community, the Franco-Ontarian community is deeply disappointed. Me and Lupa Clark, the Quebec caucus in the, in, uh, across the country, and our leader, Andrew Scheer, were very not happy with the decision that the government for took according, accordingly with the Francophone minority. This is not a question of actually a provincial issue or a uh, federal issue. It is a national issue. Extremely frustrated. Uh, we didn't see it coming uh, during the, re uh, the leadership race, during the election campaign, and e even after the election, we had a commitment. My name is Carole Jolin. I'm the president of l'Assemblée de la Francophonie de l'Ontario. Well, it's a question of justice, and people anglophone, francophone, whatever they come from, they have they have a sense of justice here. And and here, we, that's that's the case. Like, and the money saving is not a factor, considering that it's very, it's very little saving there. And, and people, uh, we have lots of Francophiles that are behind us. And I think just in the area of Toronto where there's maybe 150,000 students uh, in immersion, those parents want the best for their kids. They want them to be able to speak both languages. They want to put all the cards in the hands of their kids to succeed in life. And, and those parents are behind us 100 miles an hour. We had a very good uh, good meeting with uh, Monsieur Scheer. Uh, we, uh, that was for us to uh, uh, an opportunity to make sure that they had the right facts. Obviously, we wish he would have come out stronger, but I understand that he's uh, in a one year from the election, he's in to a very delicate position uh, because he wants the support of Mr. Ford, but he also wants the support of the people in Quebec so he can elect some 
some conservative uh, people there. So it's a tender situation for him, but uh, he'll have to deal with it. Okay, Rachel, let me start with you. Could the Doug Ford cuts to Francophone services basically affect Andrew Shear? Yeah, I think not only could it, it already has. Uh, the coverage on this in Quebec has been absolutely brutal. Um, and poor Andrew Shear is getting tarred with a decision that he didn't know about and had nothing to do with. He was blindsided. I, well, I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, the problem is, you know, and there is a bit of unfairness in that the Liberals absolutely want to tie Andrew Shear to Doug Ford at every possible opportunity, especially when Doug Ford is doing unpopular things. However, uh, Andrew Shear, I think, has also tied himself a little bit too close to Doug Ford. Um, and that, that I think is a cautionary tale about the perils of associating too closely with a provincial premier who's at a very different stage of his mandate and has a very different job to do. So Andrew Scheer is running to be the prime minister. One of the key jobs a prime minister has is protection of minority language rights. And that's not always, you know, understood or appreciated across the country, but it's one of the critical roles that a prime minister has to do. The other thing I think that's problematic, if I look at, um, the Conservative caucus right now, some of Shear's brightest lights are Quebec MPs like Gerard Deltel. Um, you know, super smart, good on their feet, do not need to read a question. And, uh, and if I'm going to rebuild a party, I'm going to rebuild with people like that. Well, the Conservatives have spent a lot of time and effort and money trying to rebuild in Quebec. For sure. And, and rightly so, because if they want to uh, form government, they need a sizable caucus in Quebec. There's one party that could benefit from, from this issue, and it's not necessarily the Liberal Party, even though they're trying their best. I mean, hearing Melanie Jolie now is called Doug Ford, Andrew Sears' uh, boss. Uh, that was a bit of a low blow, but, uh, you know, I guess that's fair I mean, game in politics. I yeah. it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> but what's sad, though, is that when it comes to actually doing something to make sure that this Francophone university is built or that the rights are protected, uh, the Liberal government is not actually moving forward with any kind of proposal. I mean, uh, you know, Melanie Jolie has not spoken to Caroline Mulroney yet. Uh, she's been, uh, Mulroney has been summoned in front of the official language committee by unanimous uh, motion of the members. Uh, she's a no-show, not coming, right? So what are the actions that can be can, can be done to uh, to help francophones in, in Ontario? Well, there's been one proposal, I've heard only one at the federal level. It came from the NDP, and they said perhaps the federal government should look at investing into this French uh, university, and I think it would be a good idea. I mean, when you compare the size, for instance, of the English minority in Quebec and the French minority in Ontario. In Quebec, there's three Anglophone universities. In Ontario, there are none. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. But this helps, I think, Justin Trudeau in places like Ontario. I think Doug Ford is setting himself up to be a drag on Andrew Scheer. I, I agree with that. Uh, but in Quebec, I think the party that could benefit from this is not the Liberal Party. It is actually the Bloc Québécois. Uh, and they have potentially a new leader, an incoming new leader in Yves-François Blanchet, the former PQ minister who was a political commentator right now, who's thinking about it. He's very articulate, he's young, he's fresh, he's a different type of leader. Uh, and, you know, uh, if people assume sovereignty is dead, you don't need much of an issue to bring it back. And this could be it. If I were the separatist parties right now, I would hammer this away and build on this and, see, and say, see, these guys do not care. 
Well, if that's the case, all the more uh, reason then, as Carl has said, that the federal government ought to step in and make some kind of commitment to building the university. Now, keep in mind, Doug Ford is making this decision because he was left a $15 billion deficit by Kathleen Wynne, and he's got to make difficult decisions to try and get Ontario's like finances. Ontario's <laughs> some finances. De- some back, decisions back are tougher order. than others. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that actually doesn't have any impact on <laughs> provincial revenues. But but he's going to have to make, I, I mean, look, his, his first budget is going to have a lot of difficult decisions in it too because he's got to get the books back in order. So if if Justin Trudeau, if Melanie, Melanie Jolie are so concerned about this and they're they're ready to you know wade in and attack Andrew Scheer for a decision he didn't actually make, what is the federal government going to do about it? Are they going to step in and you know um, support the university if the province isn't in a position to do so? Okay, well there is no better place in a discussion on Canadian politics than on whether or not there's a national unity crisis. So let's. <laughs> There. <laughs> I'm sure we'll pick this up later. Greg, Rachel, Carl, thank you very much. Uh, as usual, I really appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thank you. Carl Belanger is the president of the Douglas Caldwell Foundation. Rachel Curran is a senior associate with Harper and Associates. And Greg McEachern is a senior vice president with Proof Strategies. Late Friday, after we had recorded this panel, Premier Four announced he was partly reversing his decision to cut Francophone services. He said he will create a new French-language services commissioner, appoint a Francophone advisor in his office, and establish a Ministry of Francophone Affairs headed by Caroline Mulroney, whom he praised as an all-star minister. Mulroney said the French-language university might be funded in the future when the province's finances are in order. That's our show. If you enjoy this episode on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Send me some story ideas. You can reach me through Facebook or Twitter at Althea Raj. A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J is my handle. Follow Up is produced by myself and Ottawa reporter Zian Lum. Our technical producer is Stephanie Warner. Andre Lau is our executive producer. I was a weather guy, so I lied for a living, but (laughs) that's why I got in politics. (laughs) Sorry, you can use that. Oh, that's funny.